appreciation and musical enthusiasm are all there is to this performance. In the dramatic scenes that make up the majority of Maestro, Cooper is the weak link that drags everything down. Just a scathing takedown of Maestro by Odie Henderson of the Boston Globe. The most famous Odie since the Odie, of course, from Garfield. Cheap joke. I'm sorry. If I ever meet Odie Henderson, I'll, I'll apologize for that joke. I just love Garfield. Anyways, Maestro is our feature review this week, in addition to Rustin, which is getting a lot of Oscar buzz for the lead performance of Coleman Domingo, who is terrific playing the lead character, civil rights leader back in the 1960s. And our uh, old movie, I'll do a really quick drive-by in Matress, which is just a disturbing movie. In, in fact, it's going to be such a drive-by. Cody normally grabs the blurbs for these movies. Couldn't even find any blurbs. I went to Rotten Tomatoes, tried to go somewhere else, and I'm just like, okay, that's about all the effort I got for this movie. <laughs> It's a movie on Criterion. Everyone knows how much I love the Criterion collection. Speaking of Criterion, Scott Rogowski, huge Criterion fan. He texted me yesterday. It was his birthday, and I, I, I messaged him. Thank you. I remembered his birthday offhand. And they said, have you seen on Criterion? There's all these Marty videos. I go, no, I know. i got to dive into it at some point. But John LeBoy, a fellow Criterion lover and movie lover, sent me Matrix. So I'll, I'll explain that review at the end of the show. Most importantly, I'm burying the lead here. We got Maniscalco. Are you kidding My me? God. Maniscalco, Cody. Are we being punked? Is he really going to show up? As we have discussed in the podcast, we consistently ask for people, and generally speaking, we are disappointed. My man, Paul Giamatti, who I would give up a kidney for, I just listened to on another podcast. That's now the fourth appearance I've heard of Paul Giamatti. I saw him on Colbert. I saw him on Seth Meyers. I listened to him on Smartless, and my buddy Josh Horowitz just interviewed him on his podcast, Happy Sack Confused. And Giamatti, as always, was incredible. 51 minutes. He's so funny. He's down-to-earth relatable. And I'm like, you know, we try for Giamatti. They say, no, we're not going to get these guys. It happens. So when Laura Brandt, our guest booker, said, you guys want Sebastian Maniscalco? We're like, yeah, of course. We'll move heaven and earth for Sebastian Maniscalco. And when the answer came back, yes, you got to do it with Omar J. Dorsey, his colleague and co-star on the new film, uh, show, Bookie. And, and how about this? I said, well, do it. We need a lot of time. Because I learned, if you listen to Last Week's in a File from the, the Michael Cera episode, him and that director, who was a little full of himself, let's be honest, it was 15 minutes to two people. That's tough. I said, we're going to need 30 minutes. They go, done. So 30 minutes today. You, me, Maniscalco, and Omar. Can't believe it. Uh, does, does the Levitator show even know that we, we got Maniscalco? I may have left that out. I was like, I feel like if I say to Mike Ryan that that cinephile got him, he's going to try to steal him. So I kept it quiet. Uh, I, absolutely, he would have. And uh, he would have been successful. I think he would have stolen him. I'm like, nope. I've got the show with a little larger following. It's with a guy named Dan Levitard, Stugatz. He's like, wait, is him Stugatz? I'm like, yeah, I'm in. Maniscalco would have been happy. But who knows? Maybe he'll be... He'll be so taken with us, then you can say, go ahead, go on the Levitard show. That'll be got him first. We'll find out. But uh, again, Bookie's a really good show. I've seen the first two episodes and uh, look forward to talking with the stand-up comedy and all the rest of it. I'm here in Nashville right now, Smashville, and Chris Cody's scouting reports as always are bang on. Chris, what did you say for those who missed it when I asked you? What did you think of Nashville? I believe I said white. I believe I said bachelorette parties, yeah. and then I said these weird-ass things where they pedal around and get drunk. Nailed it. I haven't seen the third one yet, but I haven't gone out yet, so tomorrow night I hope to see the peddling stuff going on. But when you were like, listen, Nashville, white people love this place. You nailed it. I, I, I've never think of a more true description. That should be <laughs> the sign. Nashville, white people love this place. <laughs> I land Sunday, and I get to the hotel, and the first thing I'm like, i got to go to the Johnny Cash Museum. Claire Atkins, friend of Cinefell. Nashville resident, but not resident anymore. But of course, I've been there. It's, it's a good one. That's a good so one. So I said, okay, I, I, you know, I love the man in black. So right away, Johnny Cash was phenomenal. Small. Like, it's only one floor, but amazing. And I walk in and the woman said to me, how long am I going to need? She goes, 40 minutes to an hour. I was over two hours. Easy. You get to see the artifacts from his house, handwritten notes to June Carter Cash, like their old piano from 100 years ago, all the albums. And of course, once you put the headphones on, forget it. Coolest thing they had is Get Rhythm, one of his early hits. 
they had seven different versions of it. And I love this like as a sound fan, the evolution of sound. It was like the early LPs to CB, CD, excuse me, digital mixing, a digital remastering. Like it was amazing. And probably the coolest thing. What's the best? What sounded the best? Like what time? The, honestly, period? the digital remix was hilarious. It was like, hey, get rhythm. Mm -mm -mm. And they put like a dance beat on it. This is amazing. Get rhythm. And one of the coolest things about it is that you get to see one section, all the artists that have covered his music. So there was, two, I'm not kidding, 15 different versions of Ring of Fire, 15 different versions of I Walk the Line. Snoop Dogg has done it. Like I was like, what? Like, like, like Chris Isaac, Alan Jackson, Sheryl Crow. Snoop, I was like, man, like Johnny Cash's music transcends everything. And like, there's some stats at the end. I'm like, wow, he has like more number one hits than the Rolling Stones, as many as the Beatles, like six decades of musical longevity. Greatest country singer of all time, up there with my man, George Jones. Also Greg Cody's favorite. We love him because of Michael Shannon. But I'm telling you, Cash, number one is a country music artist and as a rock and roller, amazing. And of course, you know, for our generation, what do you know about Johnny Cash is the Hurt video. You know, when Rick Rubin hooked up with them in the 90s and said, hey, let's redo some of these classics. Like Rusty Cage, great Soundgarden song. You hear Johnny Cash's version, also amazing. I'm going to break, boom, boom. I'm going to break my, I'm going to break my Rusty Cage run. Like it's, and so when they play Hurt, <laughs> you think of the Nine Inch Nails song, right? It's obviously a classic song. As you're walking on the exhibits, you see all the, you know, all of his great hits, all this musical lineage, impact on Elvis and you know, other people of that era. The last thing is you leave the exhibit is they're just playing the Hurt music video, which is one of the greatest music videos of all time, but it's so depressing. It's an 80-year-old, a 70-year-old Johnny Cash at a piano, and they're just cutting back to images of his youth and his vitality, and June's, like, got her arm in his... I mean, this is just an incredible video. Mark Romanek directed it. He did one-hour photo of Robin Williams, and it said, like, one of the, you know, things I was reading about, it said, I think Rolling Stone ranked it as a you know, top 30 music video of all time or the best music video. That, and I go, this is like got to be top five all time because it shows it's so haunting seeing Cash and that vitality and that song is just so heartbreaking, reflecting in your past, the regrets, the tragedies, et cetera. So Johnny Cash Museum, well worth it, 28 bucks. The only thing that's a little scary is just how much stuff his face is on. Like you go there, I'm like, maybe I'll get a, like I, I was wearing my Johnny Cash shirt, which I've had for like 17 years. My wife, because you got to upgrade that shirt. You've had that shirt 17 years of Johnny Cash, like whatever. So I go in there, I'm like ton of shirts, sweatshirts, hoodies. But then it's just like, okay, shot glasses, of course, album CDs. But I'm like, let me get something kind of odd. So I bought lip balm, a lip balm with Johnny Cash's face on it. Like I, I can't imagine what his reaction would be to that, but they're definitely making money off of Johnny Cash's likeness. But here's where things take an odd tour. And I cannot wait for your take on this. Prior to flying down, a guy had DM me on Twitter. And said, hey, I'm a huge fan of yours. Been following you since you used to fill in a mic and mic. Oh, no. And I've never missed an episode of Cinephile. I drive an Uber. I'd love to drive you around and show you when you're there for free. And I go, okay, send me your number. Sends me his number. And I said, remind me closer to the day. Two days later, he is like, I'm just reminding you. I'm like, yeah, okay, well, I got it. I'm, I'm going to put, all right, I'll hit you up. So at the Cash Museum, I texted him. I'm like, hey, Hal, is that in? I'm at the Johnny Cash Museum. I'd like a ride. And he was like, I'm just outside of town, but I'll be there in about an hour. I'm like, okay. And he said, what are you thinking? I'm like, well, I was going to go back to my hotel because I checked the Eagles games at 3.30 local. And I got to be back. And I like to listen to the commentators and all that stuff. But I'd like to go watch some of the early games somewhere. He's like, yeah, I go, do you recommend the sports bar? He said, third and home, which is where the AAA national team plays. The Sounders, I believe they're called. I think they're the, no, it's just the Pirates, AAA, but it's not the Pirates. I know what it is. Anyways, uh, he's like, yeah, third and home, good sports bar. I'm like, great. Pick me up, Johnny Cash Museum, third and home. And then from there, you can drive me over. He, goes, he said, I'm going to join you for the early games if that's okay. And I was like, all right. But now I'm, now I'm committed. Like, I've never met this person in my life. 
If he's driving in the Uber, we're accomplishing something. I'm getting to where I need to go, and I'm having a friendly 15-minute conversation. Now we're having lunch, and this is like two hours. Pretty big commitment. So I wrote back, I go, okay, but I like, just, you know, I'm not feeling great. I'm a little under the weather, which was true. I go, so, you know, we'll hang in a little bit. He comes, pills me up, red Honda, extends his hand. I go, I, I can't shake it out. I said, I don't feel 100%. He's like, okay. I said, is there like a Walgreens or something? I got to get some day cold. I'm, all right. He takes me to Walgreens. But good guy. And, and we're having a pleasant conversation. Once we get to third home, we get some football on, hang out. And I don't know if you've ever had a conversation with somebody. You must have. Somebody who listens to the show religiously and feels like they know Chris Cody. The helpful part of it was that getting to know your business wasn't necessary. He already knew everything about me. <laughs> He's like, you know, my wife, uh, she, you know, blah, 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 she converted me to Catholicism. I know you're Muslim. I'm like, well, okay. He talks about TV shows because, you know, I, I love Breaking Bad. I know you're a Sopranos guy. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, I know Pacino's your favorite actor, but, you know, I'm De Niro. So I'm like, it, was, it actually helped the conversation. Like, I don't, I didn't tell this guy about myself. He knows everything about me already. And we end up having a really nice hour plus lunch around two ish. I got to get back. Maybe a quick nap for the Eagles. How's this work? Are you, are you having to pay? Like, is this like I, my yeah, treat? As soon as the food, I, go, I got lunch. Cause I go, no, I got lunch. No problem. I'm buying the lunch. He's trying to cut down on carbs. So I go, no problem. He gets like a burger or something. No, no bread. I went with, cause everyone goes to Nashville, the spicy chicken, right? The hot chicken. That's what Nashville is known for. But he told me, he goes, be careful. It's like really hot. I go, okay, I'll get the mild version of the hot chicken. He goes, yeah, I go, okay, that's. Definitely a wimp move by me, but I'm going to just go ahead and do it. Flatbread, fantastic food. Third and home. I highly recommend the baseball stadium looks fantastic. So as we're leaving, he goes, listen, just see, like, I'm not a weirdo or anything. I don't like want an autograph. And I go, okay, we're getting a picture. He goes, I go, this is a beautiful ball, but we're getting a picture right now. I get a waitress. I get the picture. Uh, he drives me back. He goes, listen, my son would love to meet you. It will. I said, okay. Is he a movie guy? He goes, huge. He just started a movie podcast himself. I said, I don't need the competition. I don't want to give anywhere secrets. Like, I'm, we're struggling enough as it is. So, and I said, if he's doing old movies, I go, like, I love one for the cuckoo's nest. He, goes, he just did cuckoo's nest. I go, really? He goes, if he's a cuckoo's nest guy, he wants to meet me for five minutes. I'll, I'll be at the hotel. The show, we're doing, you can come watch the show live after the show's over. Come shake hands, whatever. He's all right. So I get back to the hotel. And then he's, we also bonded over Sinatra. Because they're talking music. And I said, I'm not a big country guy, to be honest. I love Johnny Cash, but I really don't know anything else but country. Like, I'm more of a Sinatra guy. He goes, so am I. Great. And he goes, if you're a Sinatra guy, because there's a restaurant called Sinatra's in Nashville, you're shitting me. I said, there's no Frank Sinatra in Nashville? I said, there's no way. He said, I'm telling you right now, there's a Sinatra's. I go, okay. So as soon as I get back to the hotel, I'm watching the Eagles game. We don't need to recap that horrible second half. I'm angry, pissed, whatever. Take my day quill. And then he texts me. He goes, hey, here's a couple of my songs I recorded. And I was like, okay, we'll take a listen. Not bad. The next day, I'm telling the guys the story. This is where I need your input. Like they're just, their eyes are bugging out of their head. They're like, I, I, go, I can't believe you did this. I go, I want you to name how many other talent you think would do this that you know. Like, what would Dan, would Dan, like, first of all, it's not even close because Levitard is not checking his Twitter. But what would it take for Dan Levitard, somebody to, to slide into his DMs, message him, I'd like to drive you around, take them up on the offer, and then have lunch with them? I mean, that is just never happening with Dan. Uh, Stu Gatz. See, this, this kind of thing has happened to me before where you kind of get like, I've never done a thing where it's like, hey, call me when you get into town and then you actually do it. Like, I've done the thing where I just run into somebody and then we end up hanging out for like an hour or so because I'm at like a bar or yeah. something and it's like, hey, big fan. Yeah. And we end up having like, and that's just like, I've had some good experiences with that. Organic the, experience, yes. The I'll drive you around part, yeah. it, it just it connotes creepy at the beginning. <laughs> I just, I don't want, I, I'm sure he wasn't. And I just want to say like, that's what it connotes, but it's, but I've, my experiences, most people are normal. So it looks yeah. like you got lucky. You got a normal one, but yes, in terms of, I think you are the line of celebrity talent. Like, I don't think anyone like with more status than you is ever doing that. I think you're the biggest celebrity that would actually do what you just did.
Like, I'm sorry. Harold Reynolds is not doing well, this. Well, this is what we came up with. I said, can you give me any list of MLB people? They go, what? I go, Tom Berducci's not doing this. Ken Rosenthal's not doing that. Harold Reynolds, Dan Please, Jake Peavy, Carlos Pena. They go, none of these guys, none, one person you're working with this week will be like, yeah, yeah sure, I'll, I'll take you up on that offer. How would you have evacuated if it, that's the real question. Like, if it was just like quickly, you're like, oh my God, this, I got to get away from this guy. Like, what would you have done? I got to go to the bathroom and then just then, yeah, bolt. That's probably what I, <laughs> I got to the bathroom, but on the way, asked which is like, is there, is there another uh, exit? I'm like, yeah, just if you, I'm like, great. I got to open up a window. I'm just going to run. Like, it's 10 miles to your hotel. Well, at some point I'll get an Uber. I'm going to run for a mile. And then once I'm safe, then I'll just get another Uber. That's my, well, the other thing, too, this was shocking. Too. At one point, he went to something about Levitard. He goes, yeah, so Metalark, he goes, but Chris, you do it via Zoom. I'm like, yeah, no, Chris is in Miami. He's a great guy. I'm like, yeah, the whole Metalark team is like, great, great. He goes, oh, I really like Dan a lot. He goes, he's really funny and he's different. He goes, I know. And I agree with him politically. And I go, you do? He's like, yeah. I'm like, wow. I go, you're a 60 year old white man from North Carolina who lives in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised you're not a Republican. So he laughed. Yeah. He laughed, but that raised another issue. I'm like, imagine if he'd shown up in the Uber and like a MAGA sticker on the back. I'm like, that immediately I would have known, like, I've got, I've got a Right. <laughs> There's a lot of opportunity for that to go wrong, what you did. That's the reason that no one would do it, is because it worked out for you, but there are a lot of exit ramps under <laughs> with bad shit going down. Wouldn't have worked out better, but I don't know if I'll ever do it again. Like, like all the checkbooks there. Baseball fan loves the Braves, loves Sinatra, politically aligned, but like movies. But I'm like, it, it could have gone horribly awry. It's one of the situations after you think, like, what am I doing? And he's going to listen to this entire podcast. So, Hal, it was a pleasure meeting you. I look forward to your text message. I hope you enjoyed the stories, which is I enjoyed having lunch with you. And I hope you're meeting your son at some point. Let's do a little movies before we get to Maniscalco. Maestro, Bradley Cooper, our guy, huge Eagles fan. son, Howard Stern. And Howard Stern said, What do you want more? You win an Oscar? Terry Mulligan wins an Oscar? Or the Eagles win the Super Bowl. And he goes, Eagles win the Super Bowl. And Stern goes, what is wrong with you? you you've already seen that, and you could win an Oscar. And he goes, Eagles, man. And he goes, got to be the Eagles. So I, of course, love Bradley Cooper. He's a diehard Eagles fan. So I go into Maestro, excited to watch this film. As I said last week, the two screeners I'm most waiting for, Maestro and Napoleon. And this is a big week as a member of the Critics' Choice. I mean, it's one of the great honors of my life. The fact that I'm a member of the Critics' Choice, I have a vote. I don't get to vote for any baseball award, but I get to vote for the Critics' Choice Awards, and the nominations come out next week. I've got to hand in my ballot by this Friday. So I'm like, I've got to watch all these Oscar-eligible movies in the coming weeks. And I just got Napoleon. I'm going to be watching that tomorrow, probably here in Nashville. Um, I just got The Color Purple. I already watched that film. I'll give you that review in a couple weeks. George Clooney's new film, The Boys in the Boat. That's coming out in a couple weeks. But i got to watch this all before the ballot. I can't, I can't you know, be misleading here on my ballot. So um, Critics' Choice Awards, by the way, are January 14th, taking place in uh, Los Angeles, but the nominations will be released December 13th. Again, I'm getting my ballot in this Friday. All of which is to say, my prayers were answered. Maestro arrived the next day. Massive book. Massive, thick book. Big piece of vinyl. You know, another another album of Maestro. Uh, Bradley Cooper, maybe the screenplay I got, ton of stuff. Most importantly, the movie, the DVD. I pop it in. First off, pleasantly surprised, in an era where you feel like these movies are going to be super long, it's like maybe an hour 50. I go, oh, I kind of thought it'd be like two and a half hours the way the movies are going these days. But Bradley Cooper, and right out of the gate, you see him with all that makeup, the prosthetics. I can't remember his makeup artist's name right now. Fantastic job. Big nose, sunken eyes, jowly face. Starting out in flashback, he's reminiscing about his ex-wife. And that movie goes towards the story of him and Carrie Mulligan, how they first met. And this, you know, enchanting love affair. And Cooper's got a little look at me, Louie, in him. Uh, as I told last week, my habit of watching stars and talk shows, which Cody already is influencing me on. I started to watch Eddie Murphy last week, and he's very low energy on talk shows. And he's promoting some terrible movie. And I watched two months ago. Yeah, Cody's right. This is all predictable. It's not going to be interesting. Delete. But I watched Cooper the previous week. And very look at me, Louie. He tells Colbert, 
And very much like Kevin Hart said, like when I, when you're talking to a car salesman, I'm always saying your name. He goes, Stephen, I have to tell you, Stephen, Stephen, I, I was immersed in Leonard Bernstein. Stephen, I would work eight hours a day, six days a week for six years learning this character in the dialect. I go, and I, I did the math. I go, hang on a second. Six days a week, eight hours a day, six years. I'm like that, that's a little excessive. Like you didn't need to do that. You could have done two years. So during your last movie, you were doing it as well. Yes, because I'm like, let me do the math on this. A Star is Born did not come out six years ago. So while he was working on The Star is Born, he was still rehearsing Leonard Bernstein. I'm like, okay, fine, whatever. Six days a week. Six, six days, days a week. week. Like, he could have taken the Saturday off. Like, I always watching the Eagles on Sunday. He could have taken the Saturday off, dude. But anyways, I digress. Would you give up a Super... Would you Would you take a Super Bowl for the Eagles uh, or becoming a Rotten Tomatoes movie critic? Eagles Super Bowl. I thought you were going to say Emmy Award. If I could be... How about this? Emmy nomination <laughs> versus an Eagles Super Bowl. Emmy nomination, for sure. Does it piss you off that Jeremy Taché, one of our producers, just won an Emmy for some uh, Bally Marlins on deck thing? Devastating. It happens all the time. <laughs> I, I call me people. I just met someone in the hall. Like, oh, yeah, I won an Emmy award for my coverage. And I go, what? Because like, what? it's these regional Emmys. And right. I just assumed that you already had an Emmy no. because of Jeremy having one. I'm like, if Jeremy has one, Adnan's had to have won one at some point. Never won an Emmy. I've been nominated. Uh yeah, what was it nominated for? It was awesome. I've been nominated for an Emmy. Our, our remember when we did our at the, our stream uh, national championship, the Levitard show, when we were at ESPN, like for the national championship game, we had like a second screen. Yeah, I, I like juggled, yeah, I'd, like I painted remember. orange. That was nominated for an Emmy. <laughs> that that half like you know what? But we didn't win. But I was nominated. So I won, but it wasn't. It, it's it, it's honestly it almost like a made up category. The first year, Lions and I did the Oscars. We won the Emmy, but I I couldn't even. I have to look at what it says. It's like most outstanding online individual achievement in graphic design. It was such a ridiculous <laughs> thing. So I did win, but we didn't get an actual Emmy. Like remember Ben and I next year, they go, here's your certificate. And I'm like, no, that doesn't count. I need to have a physical Emmy award. It's a certificate. If you look it up, you'll see Ben and I did win an Emmy award, but the categories, it's got to be Emmy nominees. The, the nominees are Bob Costas, you know, Joe Buck, Adnanberg, Ben, look, that's that's a real Emmy nomination. It's not just like I'm sliding in on someone's very good graphic design. Anyways, as I continue my push for Emmy Award, Bradley Cooper, very immersive in the film. And I don't deny the fact he's very committed to the movie and with his voice and his mannerisms, et cetera. But that's why I was amused by that Odie Henderson blur because there's something to be said for a while watching the movie. And I do think it has a certain level of craftsmanship. You're never taken away from the fact that everyone's trying to tell you this is a very important movie capitalized, italicized, underlined. And what I came away from it thinking was, while I appreciate the movie, I didn't love it, and I wouldn't watch it a second time. And what the strength of it was, the makeup, the cinematography, like he's a very good director. Spielberg watched The Star is Born. By the way, Spielberg and Scorsese listed as producers on this. They both wanted to make a Leonard Bernstein biopic for a long time. And when Spielberg watched The Star is Born, rough gut, he told Cooper, okay, you're directing it. It's just, you know, you're starring, I know you want to start it, you're also directing it, like you're good. And I, I will say, as a director, he's got a real eye for talent, and I love how restrained his feel is. A couple of times, there's these great arguments him and Kerry Mulligan are having, and he just goes wide shot, no close-ups, relies, as the French call it, mise-en-scene. So I think he's a really talented guy. I did not expect this from Phil from The Hangover to have this kind of an eye for cinematic greatness. But I just felt like, at times, it's trying too hard to be an important film, an Oscar-bait-type film. And here's my biggest challenge with it. If you said to me right now, what did you learn about Leonard Bernstein? I didn't know anything about Leonard Bernstein going in. If you said to me, what do you learn about Leonard Bernstein versus George Gershwin? Like, what the, what's the difference with these composers? I'd say, Chris, I have no idea. I didn't actually learn anything about his music. It focused on the relationship of him and his wife, who he's deeply in love with. But he also cheated on with men. 
This is also something I always find fascinating. Like, oh, he was very devoted to her. He also had sex with men, but he loved her so much. What are you say? So, he che- so if I cheated on my wife with women, you would say I'm an adulterer. If I had sex with men, I'm like, well, I didn't just, you know, he just loved a lot. Like, that's the way they try to sell it. Like, Bernstein, who's just a man who loved, had a lot of love in his heart. There's one hilarious- like, it was okay because it was men. Right. <laughs> There's one hilarious scene. He meets a couple and their child, and he's playing with a kid, like, in the carriage. He goes, I got something exciting to tell you. I've slept with both your parents. So I'm like, oh, my God. Like, how, could, how could you be so proud of this? He's so brazen about it. But that's, that's Bernstein. He had a man who had a lot of love in his heart. And I wish I just learned more about his music and more about his work. What made him such a great composer? Like, I need that scene of him, you know, in, in Amadeus. They have the scene of Mozart learning the music, of Salieri being so jealous of his knowledge of music, his intrinsic value of that. The best scene of the movie, to me, is when he's leading the band. Again, Philly guy, Cooper talked about the Philadelphia Symphony or whatever the hell, Philharmonic. He said they were amazing. Like, he is the conductor. And it's a five-minute scene. It's incredible. Because you see him conducting and, you know, the violins and the strings. Like, it's it's beautifully constructed. I needed more of that. I needed more of explaining what exactly does a conductor do? What makes one a great conductor? Beyond waving your fingers and getting the music. Like, well, how do you do that? How do you get into that stuff? Instead, he focuses just on their marriage and the relationship. Listen, it's a good movie, but I was expecting a little more. I'll give it three minute beliefs and really give credit to Kerry Mulligan, who I think is, in many ways, the heart of the movie. He almost seems like it's like a vanity project for Bradley Cooper. Stars, produces, co-wrote. His face is everywhere right now on Netflix. But Carrie Mulligan, in some ways, I think walks away from the movie because you get a real understanding and appreciation of her character, what she saw in Leonard Bernstein, and what she was frustrated by him as well. A couple of blurbs here before we'll get to our other films. Um, Richard Roper, Chicago Sun-Times. Directing and doing the best acting of his career, Cooper also showcases Carrie Mulligan, passionate as the conductor's long-suffering wife, and Radian Simonpalai of CTV's Your Morning. Yes, hometown. I admire so many virtuosic moments without feeling an emotional connection to the material. And I often found myself wondering who is sucking up all the oxygen in the room, Bernstein or the artist telling a story. Good blurbs there on Maestro. All right, we're going to get to Rustin and Matrix in just a second, but now time for a big time guest. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, Bookie is available right now on Max, a terrific show so far. I've seen the first two episodes. It's really funny. It stars Sebastian Maniscalco and Omar J. Dorsey. Congratulations to both you gentlemen on this terrific show so far. Um, I think really what stands out to me, Omar, is how great your guys' chemistry is in this show. How did you and Sebastian develop such great chemistry, which is clearly apparent on screen? You know, from the first day we had the screen test, uh, we were just bouncing it back and forth. And I'll be honest, it just felt like we were playing a game of basketball, playing some jazz or something, or felt like an old married couple. And it, and it was, it's just, it, the, the chemistry was just, it was evident from the first second that, that we sat down with each other. Sebastian, what did you think the key was? So it was three guys, and Omar was the first guy. And uh, as soon as he left the room, Chuck, myself, and Nick said, that's the guy. <laughs> uh, without even seeing the other two. 
I mean, I just felt like I felt like Omar and I grew up together and there was like a long lasting relationship already established prior to him entering the room. And then the other two actors came in, nothing against them. It was just uh, I felt uh, right from the get go. We we had something. And then I had asked Chuck, I go, just bring him back in. I want to, you know, I want to play around a little bit more. And he came in the second time and then it kind of just it was it was just a no brainer. And then as soon as we got to set. You know, I don't I don't really do a lot of acting. Omar is a seasoned veteran when it comes to acting. So I uh, I like to run lines and before and, and, and I didn't know how he was going to take to that. Some actors are like, hey, I just rather be a little bit more organic and whatnot. But man, that's all we were doing. We were uh, we were running lines. Uh, th- there was no breaks. So wow. we uh, we really took this seriously. And uh, I think it shows in the in the show. We uh, we came prepared. For sure. And the good thing about it is that we'll have our lines for today. And during our break, we'll be running lines for tomorrow. So it just seems like it just flows so well. Like like Sebastian said, it was never a break. So no matter if we're at lunch or we're on the van going to set, we're running lines for the next day. And it's usually, you know, most of the scenes are just me and him. Yes. uh, Man, it just, it just, you know, the practice makes perfect. Sebastian, what research did you do for the role? I thought there's really good detail when you're talking, explain the life of bookies. You know, the clients get numbers. That's how you don't track these kinds of things. Did you get to hang with a bookie or did Chuck do that kind of research? How'd you come up with that? Yeah, no, there was, uh, I wasn't like hanging out in casinos or in the <laughs> underbelly of society walking around with, with bookies. Uh, I had asked Chuck early on, I said, you know, do you want me talking to he goes you know just we want you you don't have to like deep dive into the life of a bookie you want to talk to a few guys fine but uh you know chuck and nick nick particularly who's a gambler was kind of our resource for all things gambling so yeah it's not like i I immersed myself in the world of of uh of being a bookie i i i kind of brought kind of what I knew already and then things that I had questions on I kind of asked Nick because Nick's a a seasoned gambler <laughs> Omar for yourself any method to acting you did in this regard or he followed uh, Nick's lead uh I spent a lot of money over the last 25 years with my good friend I'm not going to say his name because I'm not a snitch so uh <laughs> yeah Nick and I have that in common you know um anytime I go to uh Vegas to go ha- hang with Sebastian I end up losing about five to ten thousand dollars. So yeah, <laughs> it's well worth it. Good research. It's good research. Lived in experience. Um, right. oh, you get a great scene in the first episode with the woman playing your grandmother. You know, she's telling you you can play in Canada. So no, I broke my leg in three places. She says, I used to live next to Judd Apatow. I now live next to an oil derrick. And most hilariously, she says, Does this have HBO? How am I supposed to watch that dragon shit? Yeah. Uh, tell me about that scene and work with her because you guys have great chemistry. Our Nisha is you know what? She is so much fun to work with because when we come in, you know, Miss Sebastian has been working whatever, four or five straight days. And as soon as we go into her house, she's throwing a hundred miles an hour. Yeah. And so we got to catch up with her because she is, you're talking about a seasoned actress. This woman has been doing this since the eighties, you know, since nurses. Um, she is so good. And, and it's just so much, it's just fun to work with her because her energy is so different. And you'll see throughout the whole season, the scenes with us, 
Man, she, I have to catch up with her every time. It's fun, though. It's fun because it's a whole different dynamic, a whole different energy that's being thrown at us, you know, <clears throat> from us driving around L.A. and talking and, you know, doing all listening. She, she comes in and she's like, you're, gonna, you're in my world now. And then that's exactly how it is every time. Uh, Sebastian just said, you know, you haven't done a ton of acting. I, I've always enjoyed any roles that you've done, but the, the dialogue seems to ring true. And again, you and Omar have such great chemistry. You know, there's that great line, and you said there's no porn supporting star. They're all quarterbacks. You guys sit back and forth. How much ad-libbing was uh, Chuck or Nick encouraging, or is that right in the script? Yeah, no, it's funny. Uh, Chuck is very uh, into his words, and uh, they work. I remember, you know, I added maybe a the, and he goes, eh, leave out the the. You know, like, <laughs> he's, he's very specific of what he wants. Not that he doesn't let you play around, because if you do have an idea or you do have something that, you know, you, you want to do, he's definitely available uh, for you trying it. But, you know, it's written for a certain reason, the, the way it's written, and, and he likes it kind of word perfect. And uh, I'm okay with that. But, yeah, there's, you know, Omar would would have a a, a few lines like eh, I wouldn't say that or you know this this I, I, he he came up with one line uh oh what was it Omar what that's a, that's a white white thing white folk shit that white white folk shit which yeah. you know he he threw in there and you know was a killer line but yeah I mean uh, Chuck knows what he wants as far as script but you 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 can play uh but you just I think he wants it the way it's written first and then you could maybe go off a little bit yeah yeah uh Omar there's a hilarious Charlie Sheen cameo in that episode one tell me everything about working with Charlie Sheen so did we walk into this beautiful palatial home in Malibu and sitting there is 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 the wild thing you know <laughs> like man this is like surreal uh, so, but Charlie could, couldn't be more nice. You know, uh, he couldn't be nicer. Uh, I, I was talking to him about how I worked with his dad in the movie Selma and how, how, how amazing it was working with him. And, you know, we just had a nice, you know, um, repartee just to talking about his father. And, and then we know, then we started doing scenes with him. It's like, yo, I get it now. This dude is like so good and so natural. And you can see all of the Charlie Sheenisms when you're working with him, you're like, you know, you end up starting looking at him and like, oh, I'm in the scene. My fault. I don't think I'm watching television because he's so <laughs> good, man. Um, but and there's a, it's, it's other scenes that we have later on that um, that 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 ring true. You know, that that also rings true when you see those other scenes that we have with him, man. He's 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 he's, he's the man. Yeah, I love the reference to John Cryer and his reactions. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> man. You know, when I watched it again, that's all the way to. Um, the way Sebastian delivered that line, it was something John Cry got. <laughs> That's just, he killed it, man. <laughs> Sebastian, how'd you find work with Charlie? You know, I've been on this press run for like, I don't know, eight or nine days. And I think the the expectation was like, oh, how was it working with Charlie Sheen? Like it was going to be some wild on the set, you know, uncontrollable. It was quite the opposite. He was extremely humble kind of shy actually at times but uh very very uh professional and to you know piggyback on what omar was saying he's just uh this guy's been acting for 40 years he's been in so you know wall street platoon uh yeah. you know it's uh it's charlie sheen so when you're working with him it's uh 
it's uh you know and again for a guy that doesn't do this a lot having having him around and having him available it was just uh, it was like a learning experience for me oh that's awesome once again bookie is available on max you got to check it out sebastian mascalco omar j dorsey i want to talk about some of your other work uh sebastian i'll kick it off with the irishman because i just i adore that movie i thought it was the best film of 2019 i think it's one of the best films of the decade and it was amazing to get scorsese to be able to get the band back together again with de niro and pesci and of course the first time with al pacino and marty working together and you were great in the role because you, you i mean you had such confidence and the such swaggers that character does i love the scene where you're talking about you know we're brothers right we're brothers we're brothers right get the out of here um what was it like working with scorsese like i i just can't imagine tell me everything about working with marty uh, yeah, it was very, I had a lot of anxiety going into that just because I was working with some really big heavyweights of acting and the director and you know, the whole, the whole thing. So I was, I was nervous. I didn't sleep two, two nights prior to the first scene with De Niro and Pesci at the Copacabana. Right. Uh, but once I got to set, they were very welcoming, very gracious. And it was just like, you know. As soon as we did that first rehearsal scene, you know, I just like, oh, okay, I, you know, I could, I could do this because it, it's like the unknown. You don't know how it's going to go. Even with this show, Bookie, you know, I go to set. I'm like, I don't know. Could, could I even do this? Could, could is this going to be possible? And then once you do the first scene, you know, uh, the first scene, the first day was us in the car with the money smelling like shit. And as soon as we did a couple, I'm like, all right, yeah, let's we're settling into the same thing with Irishman. I just think the fear is always the unknown. And once you kind of do it, uh, you're like, all right, what the hell was I worried about? I asked Mark Wahlberg one time, because obviously he worked on The Departed. And I said, you know, what's something about Marty you wouldn't know unless you worked with him? And he said, well, he loves to laugh. He goes, like, he loves comedians. Like, he really appreciates comedy, which makes sense. He cast you. He cast Albert Brooks way back in Taxi Driver. And he said he also has, like, a really sick sense of humor. And, and I started laughing. Wahlberg was like, he's he just has a dark sense of humor. It's a better word for it. But was there ever a moment where you were cracking up with, with Marty or Bob? Or were you really just kind of focused on the character? And as you said, perhaps so unnerved by it, you didn't want to stray too far from your lane, so to speak. No, he came and he actually sat down with us for almost 40 minutes talking about you know his early times in new york how he met de niro um and he loves to laugh he's a very personable guy he loves movies i mean i remember when i first met him he started talking about like i don't know cinema in the 1930s and i'm sitting there going i don't know nothing about the 1930s like, how do I get out of this conversation so we could maybe bond over something? And then finally we got the kids. He's got kids. I got kids. But yeah, this guy's like a like a, a cinema savant and uh, very personable. Um, you know, Robert De Niro, actually quite the opposite, kind of to himself, shy, doesn't really you know engage a lot. It's just kind of how he is. But uh, Scorsese, definitely someone who's. I don't know. Always looks happy. He's always laughing. Uh, joy to be around. But De Niro, it's funny. Um, I've interviewed him before. And he's, as you said, I love the guy. He's really sweet. And and Ray Romano also told me, he's like, listen, he's a man of few words. But that doesn't mean, because, of course, Ray was the Irishman as well. He said, but he said, he you know, he speaks volumes by his silence. Like, if he doesn't like something, he'd let you know. But he said he's just a really sweet, quiet guy. It reminds yeah. me of the Don Rickles line, who said, I once had dinner with De Niro, and it was like eating alone. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. 
that's funny. I never had dinner with him, but I could I could see that being uh, true. Yeah. Omar, I want to talk to you about Selma, which you mentioned. I just watched Rustin, which is available on Netflix. Terrific film. Coleman Domingo. Like- Coleman Domingo. It's my big brother. I, you know, I talked to him yesterday, man. I'm just really proud of him. Riveting movie. And I want everyone to go check it out. For those that don't know, Rustin was who organized the March on Washington and had a really complicated relationship, um, you know, with Dr. King, et cetera. But Selma, to me, was such an incredible movie. And uh, Ava DuVernay specifically is such a talented director. You don't see enough female directors. You don't see nearly enough uh, female directors of color. So for right. Ava, what she's done, she's such a trailblazer. Tell me about that experience working with her specifically. You know, man, I've been, work- I've been working with Ava <clears throat> for like 10 years now since uh, Selma. And uh, this is funny. This is the first movie origin her her new one is the first one that she's yep. done had been in uh but just working with ava it's it, it's it's been eye-opening it's, it's been life-changing for me you know i was on her tv show queen sugar for seven years um she changed the trajectory of my whole career i was playing gangsters and thugs until i did that role in queen sugar and people saw me as something totally different uh but uh you know she's a trailblazer you know like you said um you don't see a lot of women directing you don't see a lot of women of color directing and one thing about her that she did on queen sugar she she uh, hired all female directors for all 88 episodes so you it was all tight it was women of color it was all women I, before then i was directed by two women in my life and it was and she was one of them Wow. Um, but she has changed uh, life for a lot of uh, women who are in this industry. My wife, who I just got married uh, this time last month, um, she's a director. She's uh, shout out to her. But, um, you know, she's a part of the Ava effect. You know, when 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 they started letting women, you know, come in as direct television, then she, you know, she, she was one of the people like, oh, well, she's, you know, maybe we can bring her. And now she's a, a huge uh, producing director on television all the way around you know i'm directed to this last episode of uh the gilded age uh but she's um but yeah ava has had just changed the industry um you know just because she demanded for it to be changed also have you seen the film american fiction yet it, i it, haven't i wanted to see it and i have to see it jeffrey wright is the man i got to see it I, I can't rave about it enough i don't want to spoil it because you but i just want to tell you you have to see american fiction and i yeah. adore Right, and he's so funny in it. I really Yo, the trailer is ridiculous, and I I love Jeffrey funny, so I just want to see it, man. Yeah, well, we'll do this again after you've seen the movie because I can't wait to actually watch it. Um, Sebastian, I want a couple more from you about my father. Of course, it's a story about you and and uh, your own father. Of course, De Niro playing your dad. Um, who was more concerned about it, you, your dad, or De Niro? You in that, how am I going to portray my family on film? De Niro in that responsibility of playing another man's father, or your dad in that the intimidation of Robert De Niro's playing me? Well, uh, my dad, upon uh, Robert De Niro asking my father to come and spend two or three days with him in Oklahoma because uh, De Niro wanted to kind of get the essence of my father, my father uh, called me and says, De Niro wants me to go to Oklahoma. How much am I getting paid? And I'm like, what? He goes, I got to take off work to go to Oklahoma and I'm going to lose money. So how much is the pay? I go, dad, it's it's a movie with De Niro playing you. You know, I don't care. It's not going to pay the mortgage. So uh, my dad was worried about uh, uh, salary. So I don't think he was too concerned about the movie. Uh, De Niro was just 
doing what De Niro does. Uh, he wanted my father on set to kind of guide him through some of the scenes in the hair salon. De Niro wanted to know how to do a dye job properly. So my dad was there to help him with that. But I think a lot of the pressure was uh, on myself because here I am. I wrote a movie loosely based on my 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 father and my my wife's side of the family. And again, here I am. I never did a movie soup to nuts eight <laughs> weeks in Alabama. And I got the hero <laughs> playing my dad. Um, it was again, uh, I had sciatic pain ripping down my right leg and I was under an immense amount of pressure but learned a ton about filmmaking and acting. And uh, I was very fortunate to have Robert De Niro kind of with me the whole process. I, I really learned a lot about uh, acting and, and it was it was a good movie to go through to get to Bookie because I learned a lot on about my father that I kind of brought in to Bookie and I felt a lot more comfortable, uh, you know, acting and playing around than i ever have so um it was it was a great experience for me and to further the point about bookie specific in today's era omar you know there's so much stuff out there right here people say wow there's just it's it's almost overwhelming right that's just streaming here this is there well what i love about the show is it's very digestible 22 minutes funny right. quick breezy like how important was that again you've done films you've done long-form things like a 22-minute show that's funny and and zippy and breezy to me that has a real quality and an essence i'm assuming as actors you guys enjoy doing that as well no no doubt um you know and one thing about the viewing experience of it you can digest it quickly right right but it's two episodes you know every week so it's as if you're watching an hour long but the, that story is told from that episode, and then it sort of bleeds into the next episode. So what I did notice, what everybody kept saying was like, oh, man, I'm just ready to see episode three. I'm ready to see episode three. And that's what you want people to do. You want people to always be wanting more, right? So I think Chuck and Nick did a tremendous job on the way that they, you know, they crafted the show and the storytelling that they did. And it's offbeat. That's what I really love about it. You know, it's, it's really offbeat. You got to like really catch it. You got to like, you got to be concentrating on it. It might be a half hour, but you got to concentrate because there's so much stuff going on. And that's all, that's also how it is when you, you know, living how Danny and Ray live, uh, the, the underworld a bit, you know, it's like you have to pay attention every second. Um, but no, it was, it's, it was fun making it. It was fast paced making too, you know, um, like, you know, not, not to, um, talk, tell too much about sausages made, but yeah. we're shooting different episodes. You know, we might be shooting something from episode one and the next scene might be shooting something from episode four. We might be kicking something from episode eight in here. So it's, so that within itself keeps us on our toes at all times. Yeah, it's definitely a show that I appreciate. Like you said, because you get so used to seeing some of these shows where all the episodes drop at once. I don't like that because they watch it in one weekend, right? They right. Marvel. I just watched the whole fourth season. I don't know. There's the whole point to watching the show, digest it, marinate, let it sink in a little bit. Yeah. But you're right. The ability to say, I can't wait for the next one. That, that's obviously a, a compliment to you guys and everything that you're doing. Um, Sebastian, I once interviewed Christopher Guest, the great director, and he was really great. But one thing I noticed about him was he was a lot more serious than I may have thought. You know, this is a guy who made this a Spinal Tap and all these great mockumentaries. But he himself loves documentaries. And he's a pretty serious guy. And at the other conversation, I was laughing with him. I said, hey, man, it was really great talk with you and really interesting. And I said, you must hate it when people just ask you to be funny. They kind of put you on the spot. He said, well, it's funny you said that. As I walked in, this guy was sitting at my microphone, and he pointed to the microphone and said, this one goes to 11. And I said, yeah, 
Spinal Tap joke. And, and Gus goes, like, what am I supposed to do with that? Like, I've been hearing that for 30 years now. So my question to you, Sebastian, is what is it like as a comedian when people are expecting you to feel funny? Like, do you feel a sense of obligation or you just go, hey, man, I'm who I am. I'll give it a quick handshake with a fan or whomever. I, I don't feel the urge to have to be funny all the time. Yeah, no, I'm not looking to be funny. It's just I'm not that type of comedian where I'm always kind of looking to be the center of attention or cracking jokes or whatnot. I mean, if there's an, a moment to organically be funny, yeah, I'll I'll take advantage of it. But I'm not walking into situations going, oh, I'm not going to make these people laugh. You know, <laughs> I, I I just met on this press run. I I ran into David Blaine, who's a magician, and right. I asked him. Do you get tired of people asking you to do a trick? <laughs> and he goes, no, I actually love it. And he took out a deck of cards and he did a trick right there. And I was like, man, you know, I, I actually get annoyed when someone goes, could could you make me laugh at this? I'm like, really? I mean, you know, it's <laughs> it's like it's not like I have a bundle of jokes that I walk around with, you know, uh doing on people but um yeah i i enjoy making people laugh but i don't really force force the issue if it's there i'll take it if not then i'll just but it makes perfect sense because part of what makes your act so great and your longevity is that you come across so authentic right Todd american guy so much of your humor comes from that upbringing so i am curious also you're a massive star in the world of comedy as big as it gets you're selling at msg etc how do you still maintain that normal guy relatability. Like I, I loved um, Somewhere in Queens, a Ray Romano movie. You played his brother in that movie. And I said, yeah, again, you, you come across just so genuine and authentic. How do you maintain that? Uh, well, thank you. I I, um, I don't know. I mean, I, all my good friends are the guys I grew up with in Chicago. I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a family guy. Taking my kids to go see Santa today and going out to dinner with them afterwards. You know, I don't live a life that's kind of like in a bubble or secluded. Yeah, I mean, you get to do some really nice things uh, in this business and you have access to to things that maybe other people wouldn't. But for me, you know, I grew up in the northwest suburbs of Chicago and, uh, you know, there, my, my father and my mother and my sister, you know, there, there's no you can't get a big head over here. It's like uh people making fun of you, you know, it, it's just, I don't know. I just feel like I'm living kind of a quasi normal life because of the people that I have around me are the people that I love and adore. And I'm, you know, I'm, it's not like I'm going to Hollywood parties, you know, I'm going, <laughs> I'm, I'm just going out. I'm going to the mall. I'm going to universal studios. I'm doing things. I, that's what I love not only spending time with my family, but, you know, you extract humor from everyday experiences. And as soon as you stop doing everyday experiences, I believe you're no longer funny. You can't relate. You can't relate to the people that are coming to your show. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I just try to keep it as grounded as I possibly can. I love it. Sebastian Mascalco, Omar J. Dorsey. It's called Bookie. It's on Max. Everyone go check it out. Last thought for both of you. Not the first time, Omar. I've been confused. I wouldn't say confused is a strong word, but a resemblance to me and Sebastian Maniscalco. Looking at me now, a little darker in skin tone, but do you see a little bit of it? Maybe a third cousin? Like goes, three or four times removed, but yeah, yeah, I can see it, yeah. <laughs>
I swear to God, Sebastian, I tell my wife, I said, I'm interviewing Sebastian Menescal because oh, my friend thinks you just like looks just like him. I go, I don't know about look just like him. I go, you know, maybe some similarities, perhaps. Maybe some similarities for sure. Yeah. OK. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely when I'm looking at you on this on this screen, I, I think I'm looking in the mirror. It's <laughs> exactly the answer I was looking for. Doppelganger. <laughs> uh, great stuff, gentlemen. Thank you so much. Congrats on Bookie. Take care. All right, thank Thanks. Bye bye. <laughs> All right, back now with Chris Cody, who was noticeably silent during the interview. Chris, what happened? I told you to jump in as much as possible. What happened? Well, Sebastian's very intimidating. Uh, no, I'm kidding. I had internet issues. Anytime I turned my screen on, I couldn't hear what was happening. So I just fed you a couple questions. But I think he does look like you. I'm not going to lie. Really? You do? Th- you're, yeah. you're not just saying this to be funny. You actually do think there's a bit of resemblance. I can see. Like, right. That's. I'm not going to say you guys are doppelgangers, but I can see a resemblance. That I will give you. Big nose. You guys have a similarly shaped head. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to put my face right next to Zoom so I can, yeah. and I'm looking at myself, thinking about myself as Mascalco. Big nose, similarly shaped head, dark hair. Kind of narrow, like kind of yeah. like not wide, not wide faces, no. more tall faces. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wish you were on the Zoom. It would have been amazing. Because if he was kind of like, man, eh, you go, more wide, not wide faces, more narrow faces. Yeah. Oh, you're killing me. All right, let's do a couple more movies and get the hell out of here. Uh, again, it would have been nice if Chris on there. But the one question you want to ask him about social media stars exploding. Well, because like guys like Matt Reif, like nowadays, and I saw this one guy using auto-tune, this comedian now that's blowing up on TikTok. Nowadays, yeah. it's hard to make it. But if you have like one little video pop on TikTok, all of a sudden you have a million followers. It just... It's in some ways it's more difficult, but in some ways it's super simple. I was just curious, an old school comedian, what yeah. he makes of this new age, like one video pops and you made it where my guy had to grind the clubs throughout the entire 90s to make it. That's why I didn't want to ask it. because my guess is he wouldn't have been crazy about it. I, but I will. Think, <laughs> I don't think he would have wanted to be that blunt because he would have said, I wanted that clip of him ripping Matt Reif, like uh, Matt Reif, not a real comedian. I think he'd be like, well, you know, I grinded. For 30 years yeah. doing that. Times have changed. Yeah. Now you can do one freaking TikTok video and you're a huge star. So I I'm hope- glad you did. I'm glad you didn't bust out the fake for him. I just wanted to say <laughs> if I did a crappy impression of him, he would have been pissed. Your fakes are usually generally pretty spot on. That is not yeah. one of your best. I'm going to be honest. <laughs> in fairness, I didn't workshop it. I just jumped out of there nowhere. So if I workshop it, I'm going to come back next week with a better Sebastian Menescalco. Okay. All right. Uh, it sounds a little bit like uh, Mike Ditka. Mike Ditka, Chicago. Rustin. The Bears. The Bears. <laughs> Nemeskalco meets Ditka. Bears. Rustin, as you heard me mention, there, Omar J. Dorsey. Terrific film right now on Netflix. It's directed by George C. Wolfe, and it stars Coleman Domingo, who's getting a lot of Oscar buzz. I gave recently my best actor predictions for the Oscars, which is taking place March 10th. That's four months in advance. Is it three months in advance? So I'm allowed to be a little bit off. I'm going to do a revised list right now because I'm, I'm reviewing Maestro earlier. So I'm going to say Cooper for Maestro. I am saying Killian Murphy for Oppenheimer. Uh, I'm also adding in. Now it gets tricky. I, I was. I'll do it later on. The point is this: I also mentioned to him how much I love Jeffrey Wright in American Fiction. It's one of my top ten films of the year. And I thought to myself, Coleman Domingo is really going to have to blow it out of the park here to wow me to get in this best actor race because it feels like it's fairly straightforward cooper murphy leo etc and i gotta tell you 
Cooper Domingo is electrifying in this role. Here's the story. Activist Bayard Rustin faces racism and homophobia as he helps change the course of civil rights history by orchestrating the 1963 March on Washington. Of course, I'm familiar with the March on Washington, how impactful that was, Dr. King's famous speech, I Have a Dream, etc. But I did not realize who Bayard Rustin was. And what was really fascinating about this biopic was he had a very contentious relationship with Dr. King. Uh, Emil Amin, by the way, plays Martin Luther King Jr., and it wasn't like, you know, you, you tend to think sometimes, well, civil rights movement, they're all on the same page. Yeah, but no, like collectively, they are all pushing for the same thing, which is that all men should be created equal. But they all have different ideas of how to get there. Look at Malcolm X's approach versus Dr. King's approach, et cetera. So um, I thought the movie was really interesting in showing that even though people can have a common collective goal in the terms of how to get there, they can have lots of disagreement and challenges along the way. And one of the most impactful moments of the movie I wouldn't quite call it a reconciliation, but when Dr. King speaks positively about Rustin and Rustin's reaction to it, it's profoundly beautiful and a very poignant scene. If you want some star power, Chris Rock is in the movie as well, playing Roy Wilkins. He plays also the civil rights organizer. You've got Jeffrey Wright, the great Jeffrey Wright, as I mentioned, hopefully an Oscar nominee for American fiction. He plays uh, Representative Adam Clayton Powell as well, another important figure in the civil rights movement. So I found it very instructive because I didn't know much about Rustin at all. It's written by Julian Brees and Dustin Lance Black. Dustin Lance Black's name I remember because he wrote Milk, the film for which Sean Penn won an Oscar. And Domingo is just so committed to the role. I talked about, you know, Bradley Cooper and his look at me, Louie, what he did for the role. I don't know what Coleman Domingo did, but he clearly nailed this role. The missing tooth, the glasses. Um, the fact that this was a guy who was very upfront about what he wanted in life, and that also meant being an open homosexual at a time when being gay was going to get you murdered. So this guy was living a life in the 60s as a black civil rights activist, but also openly gay. And um, it's really a, a remarkable story because you have to look at what he was trying to overcome on levels of personal strife. You know, there's there's a story in there about a relationship he's having with one of the, the workers, then leaves him for another man, and, you know, all the challenges that that employs, and, and that man who he falls in love with, his wife is saying, no, you can't, you know, you had your fun cut, they're going to come back home. Like, you can't be gay in this time of life. And again, the, <laughs> you've already got one giant X against you being black, being a homosexual at that time. You can't imagine what Rustin was going through. But Domingo does an amazing job of showing his inner turmoil and his inner thoughts. And he's trying to battle all of that. It really is a remarkable performance and one you should see for that reason alone. The film's pretty quick, hour and 37 minutes. It's on Netflix. Um, as far as a biopic, it's, it's fairly straightforward. It doesn't exactly go from birth to death, but it focuses on that impactful moment of the March on Washington. But I would recommend it completely for Domingo's performance. Wendy Eyed of Observer, Rustin is solid, slightly stagey filmmaking that is elevated by a thrillingly dynamic central performance from the versatile Coleman Domingo. Brian Lowry, CNN.com. Rustin finally works as better as history than it does as drama. While its namesake might have assisted King's rise to the mountaintop in cinematic terms, the movie occupies a tier somewhere below it. And Bill Jibiri, one of my favorite film critics, New York Magazine slash Vulture, all in all, one walks away from Rustin enchanted with Domingo's performance while feeling that a character as larger than life and momentous as Bayard Rustin surely deserves a film less dutiful and more inspired. Last film, real quick drive-by on Matress. My man, John LaBoy, said you got to see this movie. A common thief, Gerard Depardieu, breaks into the house of a professional dominatrix and begins to help train her clients. Though this world is alien to his experience, he finds himself falling in love with her. Eventually, he discovers that she does this in order to support her son, and he attempts to help her of this life, which is 
surely she, not what she was ready for. Um, this movie came out in 1976. I'm always amazed by movies that deal with subject matter, which today, if you see them, are not surprising. But like, I can't imagine 45 years ago, the same year that Rocky came out, you know, when Taxi Driver came out, all the President's Men came out, Network came out. There's also a film about a dominatrix. And Dave Perdue playing Olivier, he breaks into this woman's house. Ten minutes in, Cody, she sees him and he comes upon this world. Like, this is not what he's expecting when he's breaking in as a jewel thief. It's all of a sudden see men dressed up in leather and being led around by dog chains. And he sees the one man. And the first words she says to him are, piss in his face. Like, just just, just a vile plot twist. Ten minutes. Hell yeah. But it, it's one thing to say about the French. They love Gerard Depardieu. He's one of these actors who is not particularly notable, but the French, they love Jerry Lewis and they love Gerard Depardieu. They think he's like De Niro over there. So it's amazing to see a young Gerard Depardieu prior to like Green Card with Andy McDowell in 1990 playing this role. But really, I just want to use this as a talking point to you. The entire theme of S&M and Dominatrix. Like when you watch a movie like this, if you were to ever watch this, don't you find yourself, because you have to empathize with the characters. Right? I'm watching... Bernstein, you know, Leonard Bernstein, I'm thinking about being a conductor, being in love with this woman, but also you know, loving men, et cetera. And I'm just thinking to myself, I can't wrap my head around the fact this guy loves the fact being led around by a dog chain, being spat, kicked in the face, spinner bond, spanked. It, it's just tough for me to empathize with those characters. In the late 70s, too. <laughs> this is just, I'm with you. That is, that's a lot. It's a lot. It's when it was grimy. But if you want a film that's provocative, certainly for its time, you can check out Matrix. I got the Criterion DVD loaned to me by John LeBoy. I'm sure you can find the Criterion channel where Scott Rogowski watches a lot of the stuff as well. Matrix, it definitely takes a dark turn. Like at one point, he's he's telling her, like, you're just a whore, you're a slut. She's like, I am a whore, but I love who I am kind of thing. And I'm like, yeah, she just, she loves giving love to these men. These men just love being treated like absolute crap. Like there's, I, I, there's a lot of stuff I'll take in life. It could be a pure submissive. Like just to be shit upon and say, yeah. That's what gets me going. It's just something I couldn't wrap my head around. Although Matrix is certainly a film I will not soon forget. I'm not going to soon forget interviewing Sebastian Maniscalco or Omar J. Dorsey. Thank you to them. Thank you to Laura Brandt. Big time debt. Check out Bookie on Max. Thanks as always to Chris Cody. Next week, Napoleon. I'll watch it here in Nashville, maybe with Hal Stevens, my Uber driver. Until then, uh, hopefully I'll dominate Samson on Thursday. Not sure when I'm flying home. But until then, I'll see you at the movies. Mm-hmm.